So is it true that a a a duck's a duck's quack doesn't echo? I mean, I think that's probably true. I'm gonna believe that it's true, or, um, because I don't have any interest in ducks otherwise. Like that's the only thing that would cause me to care about a duck's life. Nora loves a duck. Nora loves a duck. Why does Nora love a duck? I don't know. Because she knows what sound they make. <laughs> Are you saying she doesn't know what sound other animals make? Well, or does she, she care about I mean, all animals? She doesn't know like right away, you know, but I can be like, what sound does a duck make? She's like, quack. That's pretty That's good. That's right. Actually, yeah. she says cack. Oh. She doesn't really have that QU sound down yet, but. Oh, so she doesn't care enough to get it right. That's, I mean, that's fine. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, no, I don't know. Uh, I, I, think I want her to, to get it right. I want her to get it right. Yeah, focus in. Yeah. Come, Come on, on, kid. So, and it's an owl, it's an owl where, right, where they don't make any sound when they fly. Yeah, because owls are amazing. I don't know, I don't know how that's possible. Yeah, I don't. I, maybe it's not. I mean, we could. We have to admit that we could be completely wrong about anything. No, an owl's is. an owl's flight is silent. That's amazing. Yeah. Which is why I think it should be a crime for any human to ever compare themselves to an owl. Wait, yeah, way cooler than a duck's not echoing quack. Like, what use does that have? None. I mean, as soon yeah. as we started talking about owls, I forgot ducks existed. Yeah. Because I don't care. What's that about ducks anymore? Yeah. Worthless bird. I definitely really? don't know what sound they make. We need two birds. Owls and majestic eagles. And majestic eagles. That's right. That's, That's it. right. I agree. What sound does an eagle make? Caca. That's pretty good. I'm going to give you an A. Caca-ca-cha. <laughs> well, that's a an arrested development that's eagle. A chick- that's a chicken. <laughs> Sorry. That's right. Uh, Not part of our bird pantheon. Yeah. Um, so uh, when you were uh, uh, when you were trying to get in touch with me this evening, I was um, busy watching uh, that damnable Mike Snow video. Hey, Mark, can I just interrupt you for a second? Sure. You know, sometimes, Mark, I get a little Genghis Khan. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> it's true. It's a catchy, catchy video. Mike Snow with two eyes. Mike you, Snow. So you sent me that, and I think I've probably listened to it. I mean, not an exaggeration. Like 40? I listened to it. Or 50 times multiple, since you sent it to me the other day? I, I listened to it multiple times a day, every day. Yeah. And yeah. I like to watch the video, too, because it's just delightful. Because the video is um, it's up there with owls. It's delightful, just like an owl. Just like an owl in oh, flight. Oh, man, it's so <laughs> Silent good. Silent flight. What is good about it? Okay, so here's here's the deal. I mean, there yeah, there are tons of things good about it, so go ahead and just pick one. This is a pop song. We can't play it on the podcast because it'll cost lots of money, I'd imagine, to do that. I feel like we should get to play it for free if we're going to sit here and talk about it. I mean, this is basically a commercial. Yeah, I know, but I don't think it works okay, that Mike. way. Okay, Mike. Okay, Mike. Mike Snow. Mike. 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 Uh, <laughs> so, so it's a pop song. 
right? Yeah. All of this stuff is like poppy music. And it's got this, the video has this kind of plot with like a, like a Dr. No type of character and a, and a James Bond character. Mm-hmm. And the first time I watched it, I mean, there's going to be spoilers here, so you should probably go watch it if you haven't seen it yet. But I mean, first, yeah, go watch it, but promise that you'll come back. Yeah, come back. Okay. Anyway, so there's like the, I, when I first watched it, I was like, there's like definitely like a sort of gay subte- subtext happening here. Um, but I thought, nah, it's probably, you know, it's probably, that's not probably nothing. Um, but Which then, I, gotta, I mean, to your credit, because I didn't pick up on that at all. Oh, the, the first ending thing was I, a complete surprise to me. The first thing I picked up on, I was like, this seems a little gay. I don't, I don't know what's <laughs> going on here, but, but you know, it's a catchy song. I was listening to the music and then the, the Dr. No character just does this one little dance step. Right. Yeah. Now, not that that's gay, but like, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, uh, uh, is foreshadowing for what's to come. Yeah, awesomeness. I was about to say it's the first hint that you have that this is not going to follow. Yeah, like the script. Yeah, that the, the video, the James Bond script. It's going to be way more awesome than you could imagine. And um, I don't know that, you know, there's a death ray. There's all the things you want uh, in that kind of a scene. And uh, until the end of the first verse, which like, I don't know. I just. I couldn't contain myself. I was watching it at my desk. I just couldn't handle it when, uh, you know, the alarm hits five and everyone goes home so he can't kill him right away. Yeah. I was like, okay, this is great. Right. And I was, I mean, I was already hooked into the video. The aesthetic is what's so fantastic. Well, and I like the, um, I like the idea of sort of like corporate evil. Um, yes. Just being like so banal and ridiculous. Like, like he, he can't kill him because everybody has to go home now, you know? <laughs> yes. And then he has to think about it for eight hours or 12 hours or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That was perfect. Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know like a linear way to talk about this video. Cause I just want to jump around and talk about all the great parts. Yeah. Just pick something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm. It looks fantastic. Yeah, sort of that nineteen sixties look. Yeah, like that cinemascope. Uh huh. You know, Technicolor. It's a little oversaturated. Right. Yeah, it looks perfect. Co- costume and set design is great. Yeah. Um. And then and yeah and you just have the little touches like you said the death ray you know um. It's a great setup. It's a great setup and just I don't know it's really unique and interesting. Well, and the bad guy has like a fake gold golden nose that goes up over his eyebrow yeah well it's amazing it is and and not only like you said there's that that introduction of of just like this monotonous kind of like it's a day job to be evil kind of thing yeah and for him to go home and the home life ah that was (laughs) yeah he's got hilarious he's He's got got a wife wife and kids. kids and like she's got a dress on she's making dinner for him you know and he's just sort of is like, it's just another day, you know, stuck with his wife and kids and in a life that he just uh, is not fulfilled by. Yeah. Yeah. Until he falls in love with James Bond. Yeah. He realizes, he finally realizes his love for this, this spy character. Yeah. 
who's in a who's in a tuxedo and, shirt and a black bow tie. Oh, it's so good. Oh man, it's great. They do a whole like tap dance sort of number. Um, I really hope that that's the next. Uh, if there has to be some kind of viral wedding trend, which I am not a fan of as a whole because I don't generally like things um, and I'm not a happy person. But <laughs> yeah. if there's if there's got to be some kind of wedding dance trend, that that's a good one, and I feel like it's going to happen. It is, and it's a good dance, you know. Yeah. Yeah, they look great together. And then uh and then the you know, and then of course he's happy. They have this home life together. The great twist the great twist at the end being that now the wife is jaded and she's the new villain, which yeah, is perfect. She is the she's the sort of mastermind of a you know, of a like international uh crime syndicate. Yeah. Which that kind of that twist on the the supervillain when it's done well, that's one of my favorite things. Um, right. It, it reminded me of Dr. Horrible sing-along blog. Yes. Which is, uh, I mean, one of my favorite pieces of pop culture ever. Yeah. Which is so fantastic. And you know, it's just, um, it's basically perfect. I think it is. Um, and it just makes me, <laughs> it makes me want more, you know? Right. Um, and they, I mean, they sort of set up, they sort of left Dr. Horrible's like in a place where they could do, they could do more. Well, and there was talk for so long of getting everybody back together and doing a second one. Yeah. And it keeps being put off because everybody involved with that project is really famous. And well, they're busy. all more famous now than they were. Yeah. Right. When they made it, Joss yeah. Whedon makes the Avengers movies now, you know, <laughs> he's probably what? a billionaire. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, yeah. Uh, and when he isn't doing that, he does, he gets to do a little arty, you know, much ado about nothing and stuff like that. But uh, I wish they would, I wish they would figure out a way to come back together. What we no. need is another writer strike. That's it. Yeah. So that that's they totally would... it. Let's clear the slate of some of the terrible TV that's on right now. Like that'll go ahead and just weed things out. Yeah. Um, the strong will survive. Uh, and in the meantime. Uh, we can get some nice side projects from people who actually care about making good, good, good art. Yeah, exactly. Man, I can't, it makes me want to go watch uh, Doctor Horrible right now. Well, I mean, you can. We can just stop this, and you can go watch it. Okay. Ooh, I could go in the other room and start it too, and we could like sync it up and watch it at the same time. It could be adorable. Maybe we should do that for the pod blast. For the pod blast, do a commentary. Yeah, that'd be fun. It would be. We should. What do, do you it. think, America? What do you think, Beardos? Well, we're gonna do what we want to do. That's not true. We would take your suggestions. We would, especially if there was a critical mass. We should be about five people, probably. <laughs> I was about to say, what would our critical mass be? Maybe two. Yeah. If yeah. I liked the person enough, it could be one person. That's true. You know. I do like some people more than others. Even though we've never done our Cheez-Its episode for Julie. Oh, yeah. we got to do that. Yeah, we got to do the Cheez-Its episode next time. Next time. Yep. I don't have any Cheez-Its in the house right now, unfortunately. I have zero Cheez-Its. Or fortunately, depending on what perspective you want to take. I haven't had Cheez-Its in years. Um, years? Years. I haven't had Cheez-Its in years. Because I don't go Cheez-Its all the time, man. What's Here's your... what I like to do. I'm going to throw... Just some real, like, 
elitist bourgeoisie snack information on you. Okay. Which is, I don't go Cheez-Its because when I go to the grocery store, most of the time I go to Publix and what I get there is a low sodium wheat thin because I'm going to pair it with a crab dip. Mmm. Okay. Yeah. So I, I don't have time in my life for Cheez-Its. little imitation crab. You think well, that's better than Cheez-It? Like, what do you mean by better? Like, health-wise? No, it's probably toxic, but... No, you mean you think it's, like, fancier than Cheez-It? Imitation crab is the Cheez-It of the fish world. I don't think that's true. That's not true at all. It's like... Imitation crab. It's like it's imi- hot dogs. It's like fish hot dog. That's what it is. It's like <laughs> yeah, but to like you, white you have fish. to get it from the seafood department, at least. It's not canned tuna. Uh, I I mean I think I think canned tuna bears uh, uh, bears more resemblance with tuna than than imitation crab does with any fish that has ever existed <laughs> has ever existed. <laughs> I don't think you could slam this though because we're st- okay. The base of the snack is a wheat thin, which is already. Head and shoulders above a cheese it. You came at me. You came at me with. You said it was going to be like an elitist, bougie. Cause I, cause it is, right? I feel like it is. I feel like maybe if you're from I feel Alabama. Like... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. All right. Let's throw in the qualifier. Maybe if you're from Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not. No, I agree. I, I hear, no, I, that, I, no, you're right. That is that is uh, uh, the Alabama caviar. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I hear what you're saying. Crab dip and wheat. <laughs> hey, I mean, like wheat thin. That's a that's a solid snacking uh, device. That's a nice so, cracker. And yeah, when you pair it with a little, you know, salty dip, I can I can see the I can see the uh, appeal. Little sea hot dog. Yeah, the hot dog of the sea, imitation <laughs> crab. That should be their mod, their motto, their logo, their slogan. Slogan is the word I was looking for. It rhymes with your own name. How did you forget it? I don't have a blind spot for myself. I guess. Oh, look at your humility. I know, I'm such a. Oh, uh, speaking of humility, uh, I had to start reading. I know I told you a little bit about this off mic. But uh, I uh, had to start reading um, that new David Brooks book. What's it called? Uh, the uh, something about know. character. The road to character. The road to character. what it's called is white mansplaining. Is what it is. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's it, so I had I, I had to start reading that for this. Uh, it's a you know professional thing. Uh. And it's a group I agreed to be a part of, but part of the thing that we're doing is is reading this book as a discussion guide. And I joined because I already knew that I hated David Brooks. And so yeah. I figured this would be a good chance to let everybody else know that I hated David Brooks. Uh-huh. Um, and to do that in a way that would probably impact me negatively in my work environment. Um. It's not a good plan when I say it out loud, but it no. felt really good. How's it going to affect... Well, maybe you don't want to go into it. I don't know. How's it going to affect you negatively? Well, I just feel like if we're reading this book as like a discussion guide and then it becomes obvious that I'm there 
uh, to shit all over it. Oh. That maybe <laughs> I don't come across as like a team player. How much have you read of it? So I've read uh, the first two chapters. Okay. And it's already terrible. Like what about it? Well, I should say about about David Brooks and how I feel about him when I read his columns, um, which I, I tend to do. It's That's a pretty regular hate read for me. For, the, for um, those of you who don't know who David Brooks is, I don't know, maybe you live under a rock. David Brooks is the like conservative uh, uh, opinionator at the New York Times. Right. And uh, he pretty regularly has columns that just send me off the edge. Um, mostly because they're so tone deaf. That's the thing is like, it's pretty regularly a situation where David Brooks is writing to himself. Um, to, or, you mean to people who look and think the way that he does? Exactly the uh. way uh, the people that look and think the, like he does. And the problem is, is he thinks he's being incredibly broad. Well, um, I mean, considering some of the conservative uh, voices that are out there nowadays, I, I mean, Brooks actually, like, if you're going to be a conservative, uh, I think that Brooks, uh, he does have, have a more expansive viewpoint, I think. Right. And and that's the thing is, um, what I was going to say is, is, there are moments in most of his pieces, and this is proving true for the book too, where he and I can see eye to eye and I can see where he's coming from and I can think, all right, that's that's not a bad point. The problem is usually um, when it comes to things that I feel like he's getting wrong, I feel like he's getting them so wrong. <laughs> Right. And so, and that happens. So for every good point that he makes, I feel like there's about five points that I just want to, you know, stamp. Yeah. I remember, red flags all over. And I remember reading a piece by him a couple of years ago and it was sort of um, like an inverted liberation theology. Mm-hmm. So like rather than, rather than, rather than liberation coming from um, reconciliation between um, rich and poor and sort of a upsetting and uprooting of the sort of the sinful social order. Right. There was like this, um, I guess what people in the United Kingdom would call Toryism Mm -hmm. where, um, the rich people kind of have like a social view. That's what he was. That's what he was kind of arguing for. I think, um, so there was, still like a liberationist idea. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's like, he took it and turned it upside down so that like (laughs) he and his people were still on the top, you know, like he and his people would still like decide the way that society would run because like they're educated and enlightened and, you know, we can't let, we can't let sort of the marginalized people, um, have a, have a direct say in that. Well, that's the thing. I mean, he, he tends and and this book is is kind of the culmination of what he's been moving towards you know i guess the past couple of years with his columns which is the root problems of society as is is a shift in 
moral awareness Mm -hmm. and being morally centered or morally strengthened. Um, And for there are moments when he, at least so far, and granted I have a few more chapters to read. um, There are moments so far where he's willing to say part of the problem is, which he's not calling it the, the capitalist need, but it is the capitalist need to define success by what he calls resume virtues. Um, and he's rather trying to find like spiritual virtues over competitive right, he, capitalist He ends virtues. up defining, uh, it, it, he sets it up, um, as resume virtues versus eulogy virtues, the things you would want to be remembered for. Uh, sure. Um, which there's agreement there for me. I feel like, okay, yes, that is a divide that many people face and, uh, can be really problematic. And we do, uh, we could do some real work addressing that, uh, in our culture. Mm-hmm. The problem is the, the, the rub comes from how he thinks that's going to, to happen. And a good example of this, and, and this is what kind of got me started when you, when you mentioned humility is, he feels, or he seems to feel, at least I know one column that he wrote on poverty was talking about how basically poor people are poor because they don't have the moral structures in place, which uh. no, a lot of poor people are poor because regardless of the moral structures they have in place, there are systemic structures that keep them poor. Well, and the systemic structures force people to make choices that choices that maybe they um, wouldn't normally make. That, yeah, that you wouldn't make like in a condition that didn't that wasn't defined by scarcity. Right, which is some of the you know I've I've every time I read a David Brooks piece, I read two or three think pieces talking about why David Brooks is wrong, uh, yeah. uh, and one of them uh, was saying that you know rather than um, you know, virtue or uh, a set moralism leading you to the middle class. Rather, it's being middle class that leads you into a certain set of virtues. Or mm-hmm. you know, it's it's the other way around. And I, you know, it is um, at least the way I see the world. And so it's been a it's been a frustrating read so far because while I agree with him that there are there's damage done in our culture and there are problems. I just fundamentally don't understand that hearkening back to some kind of older moralism. Well, and it's interesting because if you really want to hearken back to an older moralism, I mean, we have the doctrine of hell from the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you read this about, Pope Francis. Um, oh yeah, I did. I so wanted to talk to you about this. Pope Francis being a badass. Yeah, and this this is from January twenty eighth. Um, he uh, he he wanted to take sort of issue with. Just one moment. Sorry, I'm drinking a fizzy water, and uh, I had to do a little bur- burpage. Ooh, I'm drinking a sleepy time tea. Oh, nice. Um, don't fall asleep on me now, Mark. Oh, I'll do my best, Logan. Uh, so anyway, he said that um, 
the wealthy and powerful of the world are often slaves to sin who, if they ignore the poor, will, quote, uh, end up condemning themselves and plunging into the eternal abyss of solitude, which is which is hell. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, beautiful. <laughs> Only the Pope can talk like that. Seriously. Uh, and then he goes on, quote, the greater their power and wealth, the more this blindness and deception can grow. So there's a moral vision for you, right? Right. Um, that, in, in fact... In fact, the people who are most at risk morally, at least as, at least according to Pope Francis, um, are people, the ultra-wealthy ultra, ultra wealthy of the world. Right. Um, and, um, and they have, you know, I, I, I think the, the reason it's so much more fraught for somebody who, who has a lot of power um, is because they have greater agency than people who who are under a condition of poverty definitely um i i I mean i want to believe that every every person has a certain amount of agency that that is sort of endemic to just being human um but i think that the freedom for that agency to function is you know often defined by our our social um milieu if you want. Well, it completely is. I mean, there's, there's no, you know, building this, uh, you know, to turn his language back on him talking about Brooks again, building this inner strength or this moral fortitude or whatever. That is a luxury of, for people who have the time to do that. (laughs) Uh, That is a luxury for people who have the resources. And I'm talking whether it's economic or whether it's relational um, to accomplish that. And to his credit, he's acknowledging that number one, this isn't something you can, this isn't an undertaking you can really do alone. You re- you do need help mm-hmm. to kind of build yourself as this person. And I give him credit for acknowledging that. Um, but at the same time, I'm with the Pope here right? <laughs> in rejecting that it's not going to look. He's trying to lay out this vision that is, you know, one size fits all. And that's just not going to happen. That any, um, any, anyone ought to, ought to be able to sort of stoke their moral character to the point where they can, what, pull themselves out of their conditions that they find themselves in. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a classic bootstraps argument, but instead of dollars, you're talking about, you know, um, uh, I don't know, moral, moral strength, moral, whatever, you know, whatever currency you want to peddle morals in. Yeah. It's doing that. But from Uh, one it's a, who, it's a, it's a real question, perversion of already perverse economic language. Right. And my question is like, who's, who's going to listen to this message? People who already have so much time. Well, right. That, it's just people who that can, they don't have to worry about their economic situation. So they can start examining this whole, what's lacking in my inner life. That's an incredibly, privileged position to be in yeah and i'm not saying i'm not there either as you know a first world middle class person like there there are times that i think about you know and probably way too much time that i spend thinking about my my own anxiety or 
what mm-hmm. vocation I, you know, am called to, or what should I be doing with my life? Which is a real luxury, um, given that there are a lot of people around the world who don't have time to think about that at all because they're worried about where their next meal is coming from or how they're going to afford a roof over their head. You know, so it's, it's, and that's not to say that they don't have their own moral choices to make and their own inner life to worry about and build. It's just saying that this idea that you can really stop everything in your life and not worry about, you know, the day-to-day choices that are wrapped up in class and, um, I mean, any factor you want to think about in class, race, whatever kind of designation puts you in a place in society that you can step back from that and just think about your own individual inner self. Yeah, I mean, everyone, I think, should be encouraged to, to, you know, work on some inwardness with... Oh, I, with I totally agree. Their own, you know, self-knowledge and all that is great, but the idea that it's... <laughs> I don't know. The idea that, that that process is necessarily going to help you climb the ladder of you know of socioeconomic um socioeconomic differentiation in america is kind of ridiculous to me like you got to go to work well and that's the thing is he's trying to separate it in the very in the introduction he's trying to separate this economic self that we have from this spiritual or moral self that we have Uh and that our culture asks us to do more on the first and none on the second. And my thought is, well, maybe it does ask that, but then the problem becomes for the person who cannot stop worrying, necessarily worrying about that economic status. Yeah. Because they have to find a way to make some money. So they have some food. Right. We can't pretend like that's not, that those choices aren't just as important for them, if not more important, because mm-hmm. that's what they have to do to live before they can start thinking about their inner life. So the hope for me is that we have systems in place to where no one has to worry necessarily about factors like the economic side of our being or how we get along just daily as humans. Do we have food and shelter? Well, the the middle class, the middle class probably worries about it too much. Probably so. I mean, it's really a rat race to stay in the middle class in some ways. I think that most of America is like, you know, one catastrophe away from, away from, uh, slipping. Um, although we sort of had, you know, networks of family and friends that kind of, are part of the privilege of being middle class that can kind right. of, you know, help us stay middle class. But I do think that, um, I do think that a lot of psychic energy in the middle class goes toward remaining in the middle class. And maybe that's David Brooks, um, audience. And he sort of missed the mark. I don't, I don't know. I, 
I just, I think it's, I think the people who are going to buy and read his book are mostly overeducated, um, people like us who maybe we're not in the upper middle class, but we certainly have the potential to be given, given our education. Um, although the massive amounts of debt, <laughs> the massive amounts of debt probably. Yeah. Are, let's face it, man. We're stuck. Are holding us back, but I don't know. I don't think, I don't think that, um, working class people are, going to read his book and I don't think middle class people are going to read his book. I think that David Brooks audience is, you know, upper income, not necessarily one percenters, but you know, right. um, definitely better than definitely better than kind of paycheck to paycheck everyday Americans. Yeah. And, and again, going back to my point of, I don't, I'm not arguing against him as someone that I think has every single thing wrong, uh-huh. but we can talk about, okay, there is a problem with a lack of moral vision and where we're going to instantly divide is what should that moral vision look like? Right. And you're going to have one road that goes David Brooks and you're going to have another road that goes with the comments Pope Francis just made. Uh-huh. And well, I guess my question my question for David Brooks is like, does he, does he recognize that most of the philosophical, like the great philosophical, um, religious and spiritual sort of moral visions lead toward poverty? I mean, I don't think so. Like, <laughs> like the I don't greatest, think so because I think it's the greatest virtue is to sort of, you know, to to have such a loose grip on on physical possessions that, like, poverty is no poverty is like not a true state of being. It's like a you know, it's a it's a rejection of the entire the entire struggle. Which is the thing because he he is basing you know, and again, I'm gonna reserve full judgment until I've read all the text, but. He's setting this up, this framework up, and he does it in the introduction and in the first chapter and into the second chapter. He's working a lot with the language of humility and self-sacrifice, but it's in a way that still allows for a ton of holding power. It's like the Protestant work. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, content in the Protestant work ethic that has to do with humility and self-sacrifice. Sure. Um, because humility and self-sacrifice are how you build wealth. Right. Right. Exactly. Which is, I don't think far, I don't think that that is an unfair criticism in the least to his type of thinking, given, given articles that I've read um, about his take on, his particular take on poverty, which is, that if impoverished peoples were somehow gifted these sets of morals or this moral, um, a, a different moral centering to their worlds, that they would have, you know, some bootstrap pulling capabilities. 
which is just so problematic and there's not an acknowledgement of how problematic that is given you know some of the systemic issues we have in the country um and you're right it is hugely tied to this just terrible protestant work ethic mark let's put a quick (laughs) pin in it keep recording but all the babies are crying just a second no i'm not getting anything hey mark i'm gonna stop recording i'll talk to you okay all right